WPKN.org. Stay tuned for the Organic Farm Stand coming up in just a second. Corn in the fields and listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water. King harvest is sure they come. I work for the union because she's so good to me. Thanks for tuning in to WPKN's Organic Farm Stand, which comes to you the first and third Thursday of each month. My name is Richard Hill. Chris Ferrio is sitting across the console from me, looking uh, <laughs> looking like he's awake, which is a good thing. Oh, yeah. Been awake for hours. <laughs> That's good. It's good to be here, though. I can't always make it, but it's good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And uh, so, Chris, we have, I think, a pretty remarkable show today, you know, for, for a change. A change. <laughs> you should start doing that the second half of that. <laughs> that I, fi- I finally caught on <laughs> after months. So I would say a pretty remarkable, note, you know, and then you would say. For a change. Right. And then, we, then I would be like, what do you mean for a change? And I could, you know. I could give you a hard time for putting down our previous shows, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, but th- this is the best one ever so far. <laughs> it could be. We'll see. Uh, anyway, we have, of course, our um, itinerant farm manager from Asaro Farm, Steve Munno, on the line with us. Steve, thank you so much for being with us. Great to be here with you. <laughs> hey, Steve. Great to have you. And uh, a little later, we're going to have Vincent Kay joining us. Vincent Kay is the proprietor of Swords into Plowshares Honey. And he comes to us the first Thursday of each month to give us the honeybee update. It'll be interesting to hear what he's up to now. We have this, well, Steve, I should address this to you too. We have this very anomalous, shall we say, uh, stretch here of really warm weather to the point where I was attempted to go swimming yesterday. <laughs> My better instincts took over at the last minute. But, Steve, what's going on out there at Masaro Farm? Well, it's beautiful, as you note. And, um, you know, I'd say, I'd say jump in the water somewhere if you can. <laughs> uh, the water might have gotten cold, but the conditions outside are just beautiful. You know, we've still got 
uh, leaves on the trees and, and some really beautiful fall color around. You know, it's, it's past the peak here, but um, it's still lovely. And, um, you know, with the, the sun out and these warm temperatures during the day, which, you know, it, it is abnormal, but we've been seeing more of that in recent years where November has been warmer and warmer. And, and as a grower, I'd say it's been more reliable in recent years for us to continue to harvest things, you know, outside that are unprotected. We're, we're not using row cover in our fields to sort of the frost blanket protections as much, you know, in these last five or six years as we were uh, in, the, in the previous, you know, my, my first five or six years here, you know, starting on in uh, 2010. Um, so this is becoming a bit more common. One of the unique things right now is that the nighttime temperatures ha- have stayed, you know, in the 50s, uh, you know, and, and mid 40s and upper 40s. And we really have had only a few nights in the 30s recently. So uh, we're enjoying the stretch, you know, work-wise on the farm. Uh, we are, we've just begun our fall CSA. So our 20-week summer CSA, which runs from June through October, finished up last week. And then we offer a smaller, uh, a, a sort of smaller CSA to a smaller number of people for six weeks So we do three weeks in November, we take a week off for Thanksgiving, and then three more weeks in December. So this is week one of our fall CSA, and we've got about 120 families involved with that as opposed to, you know, 300 in our summer CSA. So, um, you know, and we're still able to include things like eggplant and peppers this week. So, you know, the fact that we haven't had a hard frost, that the temperatures have stayed warmer, has has kept those plants alive. And, uh, you know, we'll take them for every last little bit we can get, you know, that those tastes of summer and uh, those those fruiting crops, because they're the only ones left for us uh, in terms of the fruiting crops. The rest of our harvest is, you know, greens and roots and some of the things that we've brought in already to cure, like our uh, garlic or our winter squash and our uh, potatoes and sweet potatoes. So fresh harvest now is limited to some some greens and some other roots like our, our carrots and radishes and uh, daikon radishes and watermelon radishes and uh, some salad turnips and such. But there's there's still plenty happening and and a warm November helps make that happen. Um, you know even though it's uh, you know portends some some uh, you know futures that are maybe a little bit scary too with climate change. Steve. Tell us a little bit, remind us, I should say, about the history of Masara Farm. What was there before it was revived to this thriving CSA certified organic farm? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, in this iteration, we've just been here since um, 2010 was our first growing year. I was hired at the end of 2009 to get this uh, sort of up and running as as a community uh, community farm doing this doing organic vegetables and, and flowers and eggs and such. Uh, but prior to that, the Massaro family was here. They had sort of two generations here. There was um, our barn. For those of you who visited here, that was a dairy barn. Um, they had about 25 milking cow in there. They had uh, plenty of chickens as well, and so they they sold milk and eggs locally. Um, so they had moved here from Italy, the Massaros, uh, John and Mary, from uh, from Italy in 1916. Wow. Um, so it was a dairy farm, uh, you know, uh, up until I'd say it seems like the, the 90s or, or maybe early 2000s. Um, you know, lots of small dairy farms. Uh, consolidated and you know dairy farm is is a tough way to go it's always been a tough tough business uh, as all farming is but uh, a lot of you know farms consolidate 
And um, there were still some folks haying around here, but there hadn't been an active milk production here for, for some time before I arrived. Um, you know, and prior to that, I don't know the full history here. Certainly, you know, the area, um, we talk about the, the uh, Pagusset people, the, the Quinnipiac uh, people, you know, were in, on these lands. Uh, and that's something that I think our team is, is working more to learn about the history because the history certainly goes well before the Masaros were here. Um, and so there's a lot more to share about uh, the farm's history, you know, in, the, in that vein. Hey, uh, Steve, I just wanted to ask, um, I know you're pretty much, um, you uh, you grow produce. Have you ever considered um, any um, animal farming over there? Yeah, well, we do have, you know, right now we've got just under 100 chickens, you know, laying hens for, for eggs. Um, last year we had a bit more, <clears throat> but the avian flu scare kind of, uh, kept us from bringing in more chickens this year. Happily, um, you know, our chickens all stayed safe, but uh, wouldn't want to bring in any new birds and then and then have them, uh, you know, fall to a to a fate of the avian flu. So, um, you know, we've had goats on the farm, and the goats they're not here right now, but we've had goats for a number of years who sort of clear some of the understory, understory and invasive species around the farm. Uh, we'll move them along our fence line. We've got a fence around our growing fields to keep deer out. Uh, and though I can mow right near the fence, there's all sorts of things that get right up in it, and I, hmm. that you know you'd have to clip by hand. Uh, but the you know the goats are wonderful at eating that, so we can sort of set up little spaces for them along the fence line so they can sort of uh, graze that down, um, and then we can re- sort of return them to their to their penned area where they have lots to eat as well. So. Um, so we've had other animals, you know, for, for different reasons, but we have not ventured into sort of the livestock for meat production. And, um, you know, I, I'm not sure if, that that's in our future, but it's certainly something we've discussed. And, and one of the things over the years, we always like to ask our customers what they want. Um, there hasn't been a big demand for that, but, you know, when there has been some interest, we've offered, you know, partner farms to, to sell through here. So at the moment, you know, for people looking for a Thanksgiving turkey, um, you know, we don't raise turkeys, but we've offered turkeys from Ramble Creek Farm, which is in Columbia, Connecticut, so to do a pickup here at Masaro. So, you know, it's open to the community, not just our CSA members. You know, people can place their order through there and then have a pickup location here for us. Hmm. So we've done that with other, with other um, livestock um, producers, uh, you know, in the area as well. Oh, no, Steve, going back to the history of the farm, can you... Tell us what what was involved in the conversion from the previous you said dairy farm to the organic uh, produce farm. I, I mean, how much I know, and maybe you could also tell us a little bit about what happens with land that is not, you know, that has been treated chemically previous to its uh, conversion. What what kind of process is involved in that conversion? You know, I was fortunate to arrive at a place that really had been inactive for some time, so I wasn't. There wasn't a concern on um, you know recent chemicals being sprayed. Or, you know, and and I don't know that this that this place was treated in any particular way, um, but you know because there had been really no activity other than haying the fields for you know at least. 10 years or so, there, there was not a concern about that kind of contamination. Now, of course, anytime you do any planting in a new place, you, you want to check for, 
things like heavy metals, lead, and such. So we, we of course, do a soil test to make sure there's no contamination, but we didn't have any reason to believe there was a barrier to our organic production um, because there was no recent you know, chemical spraying. Uh, so oftentimes for a farm that's making a transition from conventional to organic, you're looking at a three-year transition. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can start that process, stop using, you know, the conventional uh, herbicides or pesticides, start using organic practices, and then after, you know, you'd have to consult with a, a certifier, but usually after three years is when um, you can make that switch to be to becoming certified organic. Um, so we didn't have that barrier, so um, because there hadn't been any, any uh, activity, you know, that would uh, thwart our... Uh, organic certification efforts, um, but really it was just about you know the process uh, was about getting to know the soil and um, you know getting in there, learning the land, and um, just getting into planting. You know, and the big story really on how it happened uh, was the community effort. Uh, you know, this land was put into a conservation easement, and there were people who wanted this land to be you know ball fields, and there were other folks who wanted it to be a farm. So, you know, that community effort, people speaking out and, and, you know, putting together a proposal that was persuasive to the town and the town providing, you know, ultimately the lease to our organization um, to farm here was really, you know, the thing that took the most effort. I think that, you know, it could have gone a different way. There could be ball fields here instead. And and I like to play ball. I still, you know, like to play soccer and softball and things. So, uh, uh, you know, there's no... uh, ill will against people who want to do that. I certainly still love to and and want my kids to play games as well in sports. Uh, But we're lucky that that the farm idea won out. And, um, you know, so so I think that was the big community push. And from there, it's just, um, you know, getting the community support for the farming activity. And happily, you know, the little bit of controversy or a little bit of town discussion with, you know, should this be a ball field or should this be a farm, you know, that drummed up support. And so right as I was getting started, you know, that very first year in 2010, I already had, an, an, you know, a captive audience, people who were interested in what was going to happen on this property. And so, you know, that first plantings that I did, I had people, you know, who wanted in for the CSA. We, we sold out the CSA before the, the season started. And... Um, and we were fortunate also to have a good season. So, uh, you know, you can't plan these things that, that way, but we had a very good growing season our first year. Um, and that really helped get us off the ground. Just, you know, conditions were right. We had a lovely spring. It, you know, it rained every few days in the amounts that I needed it to, <laughs> you know, because we didn't have our irrigation system set up. We were just getting all the infrastructure set. You know, this property, the things we have now with the deer fencing, with our with our wells for irrigation and piping and our tunnels and our greenhouse, none, none of that was here previously. So it took time to get all that set up. And so to have a, a sort of friendly growing year the first year and to have, you know, a customer base that was uh, enthusiastic and understanding that it would be, you know, uh, you know, we started later in the season than we normally would now. That, that first year it was the end of June instead of sort of beginning of June, and we did, you know, I think 16 weeks instead of 20 weeks. We just, we, you know, we didn't grow the full range of crops that first year. We started a little smaller, um, and then we grew from there. So we called that first year our pioneer CSA because we knew people were taking a risk, and it was, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen in year number one. Um, uh, but so uh, we were very lucky. It was a wonderful year, and uh, we grew from there. Mm-hmm. S- Steve, um, what did it take to uh, start the farm? Because I'd imagine you said it was unused for 10 years. 
Uh, what was it like? Pretty significant um, work to prepare it for for um, produce farming. You know, there there was some prep work that was, that was being done, and because some um, haying was still happening, uh, you know, because this was pasture and there were cows here, and there was historically hay, and so there were some farmers nearby, and you know, a couple who who hayed the field, so it wasn't fully overgrown. There were areas of you know corners and and spots that were overgrown and and needed needed attending to, um, but. You know, what I did was, you know, now we're growing on 10 plus acres, but initially I started with just four. So I sort of focused on a, on a smaller area. And and for the smaller uh, amount of growing we were doing, I could kind of do that four acres, one one acre at a time. So I kind of had a spring planting in, in you know, an early summer planting in an acre. And as, you know, that was getting set, I then started working on that next acre bit by bit. So, you know, it wasn't... Um, you know the the those four acres were kind of the best four acres and still are some of the best on the farm um and so they got attention first and then the growth over the years has been doing it bit by bit um you know the in the next year tackled a little half acre plot and then another half acre plot and then another two acre plot so it was you know um you know just kind of strategic growth with with how we set things up but you know changing a farm from pasture into um into vegetable production, um, we did have to do some initial tillage. So, you know, sort of breaking that ground. There have been perennial grasses and such there. So, um, and I didn't use all the traditional tools that some other farms would use, you know, which would be a moldboard plow, which sort of flips the soil over. Um, so if you can think about this, this if you can picture this curved uh, this curved tool, sort of like an ice cream scoop, um, that as you get into the ice cream and it sort of flips it over. Uh, so that's kind of what the plow does. It kind of, it kind of flips it so the, the, the grass ends up uh, upside down and the, the soil is at the top, and that's a good way to kill the, the grass. But one of the problems with using that tool repeatedly is, is it creates a hard pan. Uh, and not knowing what had been done here in the past, I, you know, I wanted to sort of not use that method, and I used our chisel plow, which is more like a like the tines on a fork, and they just is we just sink it into the ground and, and then drive forward, and and it doesn't flip anything, it doesn't turn anything, it doesn't um, you know pulverize, it just kind of breaks up the ground as we as we drive through with those tines of the, of the it's not it's a little more curved than a fork would be, but um, that helped break up the soil a little bit. Um, you know, so breaking the ground was is always a little tough, and I found you know plenty of rocks, as lots of farms throughout Connecticut are blessed with. There's plenty, plenty here. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, I just I needed to learn how I was going to be able to uh, manage this soil and and produce what we were hoping to produce and and make adjustments. And you know, farming you know requires continual flexibility. So I'm, we're continuing to make adjustments as we go, as I learn more and more about the land and and how we can do what we're doing better. Mm. That's a uh, wonderful history you're providing us with. I, I know that we've, uh, <clears throat> you know, we've talked about this in the past, but this, this kind of detail is really interesting. Well, the, speaking of rocks, <laughs> what did you do about them? Did you literally uh, try to remove them from the, from the land or 
How does that work? In, yeah, in some cases, yes. You know, so on the front of the tractor, I've got a um, a bucket, you know, that can scoop some things up. And one of the buckets is a a rock bucket. So again, sort of hmm. tines. So there's there's uh, you know every foot there's a tine. So then there's space for soil to fall through. So I can kind of as I, we pull up these rocks to the surface. Um, you know, it can scoop some of them up with the bucket without letting the, um, without taking the soil away. And of course, one of the other things I did, you know, we have lots of volunteer groups here. So early on, one of the tasks would be, you know, rock picking and I would park the tractor at the end of a, a bed or at the end of the field. And, um, you, you know, we've had Cub Scouts, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, you know, with wheelbarrows to pick them up and then, and then dump them into the bucket, you know, those sort of uh, it's amazing how much fun kids can have doing that. Um, you know, and then we've made some rock piles and there are local landscapers nearby who need rocks for different landscaping projects and, and, or we've needed as we, we've built things and needed to level off an area. So, you know, you dig a hole and fill with some rock and, um, level that off to, you know, build something like our equipment shed or a little, another little shed here or there on the farm. Um, so we've basically made piles uh, in, in different areas of the farm, so we're not driving too far with the tractor or, or moving a wheelbarrow too far. So we've got different piles of rock that can be, you know, used for those landscapers or, you know, anybody who's had an interest in a rock for a project at home, uh, you know, a sidewalk or a garden area, you know, the, these the rocks are, are come in handy. So, you know, we don't typically try to remove things that are smaller than a baseball or a softball, but things that are bigger than that, um, you know, we're, we're pulling out uh, as they come. Uh, but it's, it'll be a never-ending cycle. It's just uh, the frost. The frost heaves. This is what rocks do. They rise to the, sur- the surface oh. and uh, they come out. And so, uh, you know, it's all the rock walls we've got here. You know, in, in Woodbridge and throughout Connecticut and New England. You know, these are often markers of the, the you know the fields where people had worked and plowed and uh, moving rocks to the edge. Um, so, you know, hmm. it's been going on for for millennia, and it will continue to go on. <laughs> Amazing. Well. Um Steve, we're going to ask you to, you know, chime in a little later because one thing we have not done on this show is to explore your role with uh, CT NOFA, uh, for which you are the, I believe, the chairman of the board of directors for that organization. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a co-president of the board. Yes. Okay. Well, yeah, and we I, we'd love to hear a little bit more about that. So we're going to be joined by Vincent K now, but after his. Uh, uh, presentation. We'll come back to you and ask you about some of that stuff. All right. All right. So, Vincent K., how are you doing today? <laughs> well, I'm sort of doing the same thing Steve is doing, I would imagine, on a beautiful day like this. But um, we are actually not working with bees. We're planting and uh, dealing with garlic. Lots and lots of garlic. <laughs> well, make so sure you have some. Make sure you have some strong mouthwash handy. <laughs> <laughs> well. We're at the top of a ridge right now in Hamden, and it's a beautiful day, and we're overlooking this the skyline of New Haven, which is quite amazing. And beyond that, we can see Long Island Sound and, in fact, Long Island. And uh, we know it was noon. It was getting close to, to being on the air here because the uh, the convent across the valley has a carillon uh, uh, kind of switch or something that goes off every day at noon, <laughs> but they have the music and it comes across the valley and it's actually quite beautiful. Uh, it's a sacred heart convent and, um, it's just a, a wonderful, uh, place to be and be outside. Of course it is warm, uh, much warmer than it should be. And, um, we planted at this point about 35,000 head of garlic, but of course it wants to grow. 
So uh, we held back on one of our last fields we're probably going to do on Sunday, but we've done two already. And we said, oh, boy, this was last week. We said it's going to be so warm. Um, in some ways, it's good that there's not a lot of rain, but uh, it, it, that will hold back uh, some growth. But today we were busy putting straw down on the uh, fields because the wind here is, is just brutal. Um, we're at the top of a ridge and the wind comes off West Rock State Park and just you know, uh, I've lost <laughs> when I think there was one year where we put down the straw and I didn't put any, any anchors or tomato steaks, which is what we use to, uh, to hold the straw down. Mm-hmm. But I think I lost 50 or 60 bales of straw that just whistled right off the top <laughs> of the, off of the field, which was just like, where did it go to this day? No one knows, but anyhow, <laughs> we make sure that we, we anchor it down and, uh, yeah, it, it looks pretty good here. We're, we're in good shape. Um, the skunks have come through before we, uh, after we planted and dug around the edges and messed around, you know, so we kind of filled in those holes. And yes, Steve, we have rocks too. And <laughs> we, we spend quite a bit of time uh, every time we till um, taking rocks yeah, out. Uh, yeah. Well, the last time I checked, there's no, no nutritional value in rocks. Uh, yeah, and and I don't think um, I, it's very common to New England. I'm constantly coming across rocks in my garden, and they're always coming up. Yeah, well, we've got a lot of clay in this soil here too, um, which in some ways people will say you you should add compost, and I agree. If you had it, we if we had more compost, we would. Um, you know, the straw gets tilled in every year, and we've taken the rocks out. But the clay in some ways also holds the fertilizer that we put in. We, we use organic fertilizers. Um, garlic loves organic, uh, just like honeybees. It loves organic. They love organic. And so we, we try to stay true to those principles, and we do. Um, but it's, um, it's interesting. The clay team sometimes will hold the nutrition in the soil a little bit longer, um, which, is, which is beneficial for us. Um, but we, we're, we've been... Uh, you know, trenching and, and planting the garlic. But before we do, just like tulips and daffodils, um, you add a little fertilizer before, you know, when you're planting them. We do the same thing with the garlic. So we, we uh, run a line of fertilizer right in the trench as we're, uh, the crew is planting. So we got about uh, uh, four people working, planting. Uh, we all have our jobs of uh, camping with the rake and putting the cloves in and uh, <laughs> our backs all hurt. We all walk a little funny these days, but it's, <laughs> it's almost, it's almost over. So that's good. And, and then once the straws on it, if it comes up, it comes up. There's not, there's no way you can prevent it. Uh, ideally you'd like the roots to go down and, and the plant not to come up above the straw or the mulch, whatever you may use. But um, just because, you know, at some point it will get cold and some of those icy nights and um, you know, the, puddles of water that freeze and thaw um, will damage the plant to some extent. But garlic is pretty hardy. So um, I've been very surprised at uh, the lack of damage um, in many years. But um, that's the garlic part of our our life. And um, I was going to talk about beeswax candles, but I'll I'll briefly um, talk about bees because we haven't really seen the bees in probably a week to 10 days. Um, We made sure that everyone had enough food because we knew that garlic planting was coming up. So we, um, any hives that were light um, in stores or food, we topped off with sugar syrup, which, of course, we don't like to do. But, you know, you have a responsibility to make sure um, those bees that you've been tending all year have enough to eat going into the winter. 
And with this warm weather, anyone who needs to do that really should take advantage. I mean, we did it quite some time ago. So the hives right now are very heavy. Um, they've got their treatments of miticide on to kill the mites. And um, uh, bear fences are working well because bears are very active right now. They're, they're gaining uh, weight and trying to put on, uh, get the protein to put on weight for the winter. Uh, may not need it, but instinctually that's what they do at this time of year, whether they need it or not. So bees are always at risk, as is as our bird feeders and you know other food pens. That, you know, people who raise livestock may may uh, may find out uh, the bears do raid those those food pens, and uh, so it's it's quite amazing. Anyhow, the, the bear fences, which we use a solar electric fencing, it doesn't hurt the bears, but it does snap them occasionally, and uh, uh, they're very trainable. So that that doesn't happen very often before they they back right off and. Uh, uh, we have had very, very good luck with the electric fences um, because some of the places we keep bees are just overrun with bears. We know that because we see them on cameras. We have trail cams set up, and they actually go around the fences. It's amazing to, to watch it <laughs> you know, because it'll take a picture of them circling the fence looking for a way in, and they just say, okay, that's it. <laughs> There's no way in, so off they go, and it's just great. And um, without that, we probably wouldn't be keeping bees right now. So. Wow. Um, but um, in general, um, you know, there's not a heck of a lot. Uh, you know, feeding bees is, is the priority. Um, you want to winterize the hive as far as maybe wrapping with material. Um, we usually don't, but um, the bees do a great job of waterproofing and windproofing the hive with the propolis that they gather in August, which is a, a tree resin, mostly from, from pine trees or, or, ever, or evergreens. And it's, it's almost like a roofing tar. And it's a, it's a wonderful substance because uh, it, when it gets cold, it's, it's, it's like uh, glue. It just everything is, is frozen. And it just uh, they fill the cracks and crevices of the hives with this propolis. And um, some, um, there's some pr- properties of propolis, which people have figured out are, are antiseptic. So you'll see it in natural toothpaste that's added um, in small amounts. And it has a wonderful smell. It's kind of... Uh, like eucalyptus in a way, it's got an aromatic uh, odor to it, and it's very pleasant. Um, in the summer, it's it's a nightmare to work with because it's like roofing tar. So you're constantly, you know, scraping it off your hive tools and and you know gloves and whatnot. But um, this time of year, it's it's not a problem. Uh, mouse guards should be put on the entrances of the hives to make sure that um, no mice or rodents get into the hives in the winter because they can wreak havoc. And one of the other little things that you can do is also make sure on the upper um, lid or, or uh, cover that you have on the hive that the, it's, it's propped open a little bit. And we use a little piece of wood that measures about three-eighths of an inch. And uh, we put that between the inner cover and the outer cover lid. And it lo- allows the moisture uh, to escape from the hive during the winter. Because many people don't know this, but bees, honeybees don't go to sleep or hibernate during the winter. They actually stay alive and warm and not very active, but they, they form a cluster inside the hive. And you can see it moving around slowly, but they eat the honey um, that is their food. And um, so you have to leave them enough honey or supplement with, well, you know, sometimes if you need to, sugar um, to get them through. But it is their food. And that metabolism creates carbon dioxide and moisture. So the carbon dioxide needs to find a way out, but so does the moisture. Otherwise, what happens is that 
everything becomes wet around the perimeter or the periphery of the cluster. And sometimes it drips back onto the cluster and freezes them. So you want to make sure that there's um, a little bit of air circulating. Not too much, though, because otherwise you'll chill them and the hive gets too cold and then they consume too much honey and you have starvation issues later in the winter. So there's little tricks like that that beekeepers can read about um, in, in many of the, the bee journals and, and books that have been written about bees. But I'm just focusing on the ones that you know we, we do um, as, as a matter of chores um, every year at this time. So... Uh, yeah, that's about it. Interesting. What? How do you get? What do you use to for air circulation? Is that just you know having vents in the hive, or no, it's, a little, it's, it's a little shim, a piece of wood that lifts the outer cover up a little bit, so that um, it, it's not sealed to the inner cover. Uh-huh. I mean, it's hard to explain. Um, you have the boxes that the bees are in, but then you have an inner cover which is pretty tight, and the bees propolize it to make sure that it's. Uh, windproof, but there's a little hole in the inner cover, um, and then the outer cover goes over that. And so you need a little bit of space, a little shim of wood or something. Doesn't matter what it is; it could be a rock. Uh, good use for rock, Steve. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you need a little shim in there to create circulation, so that the you know at the same time you don't want a lot of cold air whistling through the hive. So the entrance on the front of the hive, where the bees normally come and go. That needs to be reduced to prevent um, heat loss and also, you know, hopefully um, prevent rodents from getting in because they're always looking for a warm place. And, you know, if you took the outer cover off in the, it could be zero degrees outside. And if you took that outer cover off and put your hand over the inner cover hole, uh, you would find like a, a, a gasp of 60 or 70 degree heat shooting out of the hive. Hmm. And it's just remarkable. Um, of course, you wouldn't want to do that because that will kill the hive. But, I mean, it, it, it is, it's there. I mean, it, they do keep that, that hive warm in the winter. And as spring progresses or the days get a little bit longer into late January and February, the queen will start laying eggs. And so the center of that cluster where the eggs are, that, will, that temperature will rise to about 95 degrees. And so if you just think about these cold-blooded insects, they're reacting like a warm-blooded animal. And it's just remarkable. It's one of the, the wonders of the universe, as far as I'm concerned. It's just, it uh, amazes me. Vincent, um, when you're harvesting honey, um, I'm assuming that, that season's over, but how do you yeah. know, it just kind of, is it like a feeling? How do you know how much honey to take without having to anticipate supplementing the um, the sugar content? Yeah, that's always a good question because none of us ever want to have to do that because sugar is quite frankly very expensive. Um, and it's, it's probably in some ways the scientists have said sugar is probably a better food source for the honeybees during the winter when they're, they're not flying. Um, it's more pure uh, carbohydrate. It, it doesn't have a lot of other things in it, which may affect the bees' digestive, digestive system in a negative way. However, um, it's still, uh, for us, something that we don't want to have to do unless we have to um, because of the expenses involved. And certainly now with the cost of sugar, it's outrageous. But um, it, you do have find, you get a feel for um, how much to leave and how much to take. And, um, yeah, everyone wants to harvest, harvest, harvest. And, you know, we stopped harvesting this year because we knew that the drought was affecting the bees. And we said, let's let them keep that honey. And um, we said uh, that's more important. So are you guys still there? 
Yes, we are. Okay, good. Because I heard something on my phone. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't talking to myself. I do sometimes, but anyhow. Yeah, so the um, it, it is a kind of a, a you know something that you learn by um, by experience, and sometimes it's not always a pleasant experience because you sometimes don't leave enough and forget to feed or don't get around to feeding them. And, and, you know, these, these are mistakes that are horrible. And so it does happen. And a lot of times new beekeepers don't feed their bees and, and they die. And it's like any kind of animal or uh, livestock husbandry, you have a responsibility once you've created this, this life cycle. And uh, we take that very seriously because um, it is our livelihood, but at the same time, uh, they're, they're such an important part of, of nature and, and, so needed right now uh, in nature and, and agriculture in particular. Hey, Vincent, I wanted to ask you, when you feed the bees with, with sugar, does that yes. af- affect the quality of the, of the honey that's produced? In other words, oh, no, 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 no. The, the, the sugar is, is fed, you know, months and months um, prior to um, the honey that's harvested. See, I mean, we're putting, if we needed to feed at all, we're feeding now. But those honey boxes that we, uh, the bees would fill with honey, they're not even put on until next May or June. So uh, it, it's long gone from the hive. It's, it's uh, not even a trace. And, and you certainly don't, wouldn't want to ever risk um, having um, uh, sugar, uh, commercial white sugar or whatever, you know, syrup that you would use. You wouldn't want that in the honey, obviously. And, and we make sure that that wouldn't happen 100%. Right. Okay. Positive. So yeah, yeah. It's it's such a time lapse between the two uh, exercises, so to speak, that it's just uh, it's long gone. <laughs> it's long gone. Good to know. Well, yeah. Why don't you say a word or two about the um, the candle? Uh, well, it, it, yeah, it, we we make um, beeswax candles, and you know it's kind of funny because. Um, all through the pandemic, um, if it's over, uh, I don't know if it really is, but it, during the more severe stages of it, you know, we, we found this little spike in um, c- candle use. Be- our can- people were buying our beeswax candles like crazy, and we produce a, a very simple 10-inch taper dinner candle. It's, it's lovely. They smell wonderful. It's non-petroleum. It's 100% beeswax produced by the bees from a gland on their abdomens, which they produce um, the beeswax in little flakes, and they mold it with their legs into the shape of the comb. And when they first produce it, it's pure white. It becomes an, uh, an orangey-yellow because of the pollen on their legs. So that stains the beeswax to uh, the yellow that people are used to either associating with beeswax or actually have, have seen. Um, when we harvest the honey, we, we shave off a layer of the beeswax before we put the um, the combs full of honey in the, into the uh, centrifuge or extractor. And um, those cappings um, drain, and um, then we um, spin them, and we also um, then heat them into um, kind of a, a, a double boiler uh, solution, which floats the wax above the water. Once wax becomes molten, it's lighter than water, so it separates. So we have these big cauldrons that we heat with um, electricity and um, it separates the wax and the water and then we filter that and becomes these big huge chunks or cakes of beeswax which we then allow to cool and 
we filter it, you know, prior to that, and and it cools in these buckets, and you know, we store it because it doesn't go bad. But it's um, when we uh, we chisel off a piece um, or break open pieces to make the candles. So that's kind of the process. But we found that people during the pandemic were using a lot of candles, and I said, this is great. And we found out, you know, I asked people why occasionally when I ran into them in stores, and they said, well, we're home and we're we're home cooking, and we and we love the candles because they're natural and and um, you know they they fit to our our dinner, um, which we now have time for because we're not working so much. <laughs> and I said, well, that's great, but I have to work to provide these candles <laughs> in, in July and August, which I'm not normally. It's so hot. How am I going to make these candles when it's 90 degrees in our shop? And so it, it was. It was kind of a wicked um, blessing and curse, you know, at the same time. <laughs> but it was. It was good. It was good. And now people have uh, continued to use them, so it's it's great. And um, we were. I made candles this morning, and and I always say that a, a pair of beeswax candles and a one pound jar of honey make a wonderful gift um, around any holiday. So it's uh, very inexpensive, and um, it's just lovely. Wonderful. Uh, you know, I'm just gonna had this brilliant uh, idea, something we don't do very often. Actually, you did it one time, Chris, when I wasn't here. It was Have listeners in- call in? Yeah, have some call-ins. So if anybody has a question for Steve Munno or Vincent Kay about anything we've been talking about today or any other farming questions, uh, the number to call is 203-336-9756. That's 203 336 Nine seven five six. So it'd be nice to hear from some of our community out there. So Once, go ahead, uh, uh, Chris. So Vincent, uh, I just have a question. You, you talked about the uh, uh, propolis. Um, so how do the bees gather those from the evergreens? Is it from like the the cones or the trunk or the the needles? Well, evidently, um, the trees produce kind of a an oozy pitch, if you would kind of a, a, a tar um, uh, that exudes it only in the hot weather. And um, I, I have, you know, if you, if you go up to a white pine tree and you handle the, the needles and, the, and the, the branches, sometimes your hands will come away sticky. That's propolis. Mm-hmm. And um, it's there, and the bees gather it with their mouth just the way they would nectar, and they bring it back to the hives. And, of course, many, many trips um, produce probably a drop or two <laughs> per day, and they eventually get quite a bit of it. But there's a lot of bees at that time of year, and the um, propolis is uh, is uh, very malleable. It, it can be worked, in, and like I said, it's it's pretty loose. Um, but boy, it's sticky and it's it's gummy, and it, every bit resembles roofing tar if you've ever handled that. Um, so it's um, but that's how the bees do it. And then, um, but you know, it's got a history that. You know, Stradivarius used it in his varnish for violins, and Napoleon used it to waterproof his ships. And, you know, throughout history, it's had kind of a, you know, many uses. Uh, Yeah. And the the only source of that is white pine trees? Is that what you're saying? No, I mean, I'm not quite certain of that. Um, No, I would would say it's probably uh, many different types of uh, evergreens, and it may even include deciduous trees as well. Um, they may also produce a kind of gummy substance in the hot summer, you know, the August heat, which is when um, you see it most. And um, and some beekeepers harvest it. Some beekeepers harvest the pollen. So 
them be, beekeepers harvest everything, and we tend not to because you know the, the poor critters need to need a break and they need to keep some of what they have. And so we're very careful about um, you know what we harvest from the, from the hives. It's um, you know it, our bees have it pretty darn good. That's all I can say. <laughs> That's interesting. Well. Yeah. Uh, a question. This is a totally far-flung question re- relating to pretty much nothing that anybody said today. But I, I have been noticing that there are some white pine trees that produce pine cones, which are marvelous, you know, in many respects. But they're also great for f- starting fires in your fireplace or your wood-burning stove. Yes, they are. Yeah. yeah. Um, but others do not. And does anybody have uh, an answer for that one? Like, why do some uh, white pine trees, which are the pine cones I'm talking about, why do some produce those cones and others apparently are fallow? I will say this. I think that everything produces a flower that's alive, but I think some things may be producing them on different cycles. So you could have a biennial kind of cycle to certain trees or blooms, um, and so that may affect other trees may may respond to different conditions um and, and it's it's interesting because i've noticed the same thing richard and uh, i'm looking at a stand of spruce trees now which i noticed this past year were covered with um pine cones and i, I will be observing them to see if the same uh happens this coming year uh in the spring and summer uh, but i'm not sure it will um, right. but it, it it was able this past year to put out an amazing amount of pine cones, which also means seeds um, for reproduction. So that the pine cone is the the shell, if you would, for the uh, the uh, the seed that's, that's going to fall to the ground and sprout. So it's it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Well, Vincent, thank you once again for a fantabulous uh, report. <laughs> <laughs> and for the lovely uh, vistas you you uh, shared with us from uh, your perch there above. Uh, did, we, did we get no calls? We no, don't, no don't calls. Seem to have any calls? Yeah, so we must have answered every single question. That people <laughs> so, so actually, I did want to ask uh, Steve. Do you have any questions for Vincent? Well, you know, with the, it being warmer, there's so much more bee activity. I, you know, I don't know how that's that's mm. affecting you, Vincent. I mean, obviously, you've been out doing the garlic right now, too. So maybe yeah. they don't need as much attention at the moment, given the conditions. But I, I've been seeing bees, you know, all over the place, uh, particularly on our our mums. We grow a perennial mum here just in the landscape that's uh, oh. opened up into the flowers. Not Not like the things that you see, you know. Uh, in pots, but um, yeah, I'm curious what you know if you've had time to see the bees recently. How they're doing with, with all this? It's just uh, with a sort of warmer November than typical. Well, I have seen um, the bees in, and we see them every day as we're traveling. Um, even even today, we're working with the garlic, but um, there's still little batches under shaded spots of asters and things uh, of that sort. And if you look closely at the ground, there's chickweed that's starting and other things that. You know, because it's nice and warm down there, uh, close to the ground, will continue almost blooming almost all winter long. Of course, the bees can't get to it, but um, it's. Uh, we made sure before we started um, working with the garlic, the bees had plenty of food. That's another danger of global warming or climate change, if, if you will, is that these warmer spells that we're having uh, changes. Uh, how much food uh, a hive of bees may consume before winter, um, the time between 
when there's no flowers, which was probably about three weeks ago, uh, when everything kind of ended, we had a frost, a killing frost. Um, and now um, we have 75-degree weather. So you have all those bees um, fairly active. They're, they're not uh, – one of the nice things is when, when it gets cooler, uh, no, they don't go to sleep, but they still are in the hive and they're using less food. Um, their metabolism slows down, which is not the case right now. They're, they're revved up. They're flying. There's no flowers out there. So they can go through the food that they've had stored – um, whether it be uh, the honey that we've left them or the sugar that we've uh, left them or other people have said, whatever. Um, so you have to kind of check uh, weekly, almost, I would say almost weekly, every 10 days certainly, to make sure they have enough. If this weather doesn't break and if uh, it continues, that's one of the dangers of these warm spells. It's just not great for, um, uh, maybe some people would say it is great, but, you know, in, in nature... Uh, things do need to go dormant, and uh, uh, otherwise uh, they will perish because they become too active and they'll run out of food uh, uh, when they really need it, which is in the cold spell. Well, presumably by December, when you ne- next join us, Vincent, we'll have some <laughs> yeah. slightly cooler temperatures. Well, the- we may not, though. That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've taken a swim over here in Woodbridge, and <laughs> I won't mention the body of water, but uh, I, I've, I've gone swimming as late as Thanksgiving. So, I mean, it, it can stay warm. It's, it's amazing. So what's the most recent swim you've taken, Vincent? Well, I haven't, I haven't done much this year because we've been so busy, but I was thinking about it, as you mentioned. It's like, <laughs> you know, you, usually it, it, it's great. I usually am a freshwater swimmer myself, but... Um, uh, I'm not going to mention the <laughs> private place on maybe water company land. No, I, I shouldn't do that. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, no, we, uh, we have little, little swimming holes that, uh, that, uh, are available to us on, on different people's properties. And, uh, uh, but it can give, the water can be very cold, but you know, there have been, you know, Thanksgivings where it's, it's, it's been, you know, about this temperature. So it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's nice. It's refreshing to say the least. Yeah. Well, I, I had, I uh, applaud your, uh, shall we say, proclivity for trespassing in in with 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 a water hole as its main uh, reward. So Vincent K. Once again, uh, swords into plowshares, honey, and it's been a wonderful presentation. Oh, actually, great. it looks like we're going to have a call. Pleasure. Oh, we got a call coming. Thank you, Steve, as well. Hang in there, Vincent. Oh, boy. Hello? Hello? Yeah. I'm here. Okay, Uh, hi. Uh, I just really quickly, I've never done beehiving before, and and I want to start. Is it too late to get started uh, this time of year? Yes. In this this part of the country, yes. Maybe if you were in the south, you could start any time. But, um, no, the weather's uh, hopefully going to chill down, and um, the time to start a beehive would probably be in uh, March, the end of March uh, coming up. Yeah, okay, that's, that answers my question. Thank you very much. Thanks yeah, for thanks. calling. This will be a good time to just start oh. figuring out your resources and getting things set up. Yeah. You know, sure. you, you know, take a little bit of time to get your hive together, your space together, you know, identifying where you're going to get, um, 
the bees from. So this is a good time to get prepared. Though you, you know, as Vincent said, you won't actually start with the beekeeping until the spring. Uh, this is a great time to start getting ready, uh, identifying all, all your needs and resources, and, and getting yourself prepped. Well, that's a, that's a really good point, Steve. Because um, actually, I wasn't going to bring that up yet, but um, we um, always like to wait a little bit longer into the season um, before we make the decision. But we have a lot of bees right now, and we probably will be doing splits and making nucleus colonies, as they're called, and we will be selling those. So if other beekeepers or people wanting to get started want to purchase bees, we will be, knock on wood, um, uh, you never count your eggs before they hatch or the chickens before they're hatched, but everything looks like a go at this point. So um, we will, you know, kind of put the word out a little bit more um, directly um later in the winter but we're, we're hoping to uh to start selling bees uh, again this this year so yeah and we do have another caller uh caller what's your uh query so to speak hi hi uh, yeah uh, i was curious um i tuned in the show a little late and i wanted to ask um about when the uh, best feeding times were for honeybees when you when you own a hive the best time of the season or the best time uh, I'm going to clear, ask uh, you to clarify uh, the question. When it's, you know, when it's done seasonally. Well, that's a very good question. Um, right now, any good time, if the bees really need it and, and they look like they might not make it unless you feed them, obviously feed them anytime. Try to get some, something into them. The one tricky thing right now is you don't want to uh, enter or um, have the bees take in too much moisture into the hive they've got it pretty much sealed up and you know right at the the best barometric pressure and the moisture level all that the bees have done by now and so they're cruising into the winter with this kind of living room of comfort which if you start adding sugar syrup well it's not cured i mean they're going to have to cure it and when i say cure they're going to have to evaporate some of that moisture and so you're going to rev them up to do that so the best time to do it would have been maybe a month, month and a half ago. However, that being said, um, like I said, if they need to be fed, we'll get to it because you've got some, some good weather and, and this temperature will actually help you or help the bees to evaporate some of that moisture in the syrup as you feed it to them. All right. And we're going to have to wrap it because we're almost out of time. So I want to thank our callers and especially Vincent Kay and Steve Munno. Steve, we're going to have to postpone your report about CT NOFA and the operation there until next show. Next time, and next I want to say also that next show we're going to be joined by Suzanne Dusing, who's going to give us some uh, seasonal recipes and a whole lot of <laughs> energy as Suzanne is uh, want to uh, produce. So thanks everybody. Uh, this has been the organic farm stand and we will be back uh, when on the 17th, I think it is uh, oh, two weeks oh, from today, yeah, two weeks from today. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I don't have my calendar in front of me. It's been our pleasure. So for Chris Ferriero and myself, Richard Hill, thanks for listening and stay tuned to WPKN. I believe it, it's all mixed up coming up with uh, Peter Beauchamp.
100% natural This world we're living in Gets crazier by the day Yes it do And the companies are throwing us This is the Gaiagram environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. Experts told ABC News bodies of water all over North America are drying up as a result of drought and a decrease in precipitation earlier this year. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration predicted that the 22-year mega drought affecting the West would not only intensify but also move eastward. That prediction appears to be coming into fruition with about 82% of the continental U.S. currently showing conditions between abnormal dry and exceptional drought. Rivers all over the world are running really low, especially the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in Iraq, as well as significant bodies of water in countries like Italy, Romania, France, and China. The Great Salt Lake in Utah shrunk to historic lows this year, and water levels continue to drop. The largest natural lake west of the Mississippi supports mineral extraction, recreation,